Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hi, I'm Kirk Bailey, and welcome to this week's Boss Podcast, featuring Marty Kagan and his CEO tale, Customers Are Not the Source of Innovation. Marty Kagan has worked with some of the biggest tech product companies in the world. He was involved in the early stages of Netscape and eBay and has since formed SVPG, who work with teams at Google, Apple, Netflix, Airbnb, Disney and Amazon, to name just a few. In this talk from 2018, Marty drills home the point that customers are not the source of innovation. It must come from inside your company. Prime and the iPhone would never exist if Amazon and Apple had actually listened to their customers. Using examples from some of the biggest product companies in the world, Marty shows how using engineers can lead to innovation in a way that a focus group never could. Don't forget you can get all the latest news, updates and talks in our newsletter. Go to businessofsoftware.org slash updates to find out more. Happy listening. I, I do have, uh, we had talked before about, a, you know, product is a massive topic. There are so many different sort of topics within the topic. Um, and I, I kind of picked one that I am um, kind of interested in lately. I'm always sort of focusing in on different issues or problems I see. And so this is going to drill in on one. It'll also let me talk about a few others. But uh, I'm going to save plenty of room afterwards for just open Q&A. Uh, I love the questions. Uh, let me just ask, though, how many of you would call yourself either a product manager or a product owner? Okay, almost all of you. Uh, how many would call yourself a uh, startup co-founder? Okay, and how many would put yourself in the design category? Interaction designer, UX designer, oh, quite a bit. And any engineers? Anybody else? Data. Data, I should have asked, of course, good. Good, all right, well, that's uh, my crowd. For sure, uh, that's I, you know I really basically just work with product teams, um, which is product design engineering, and when they're startups, the product is usually a startup CEO or co-founder. So that's um, the group I like to talk with and spend my time with. So I don't know how many of you um, know me, but uh, I have worked in this space for a very long time. Uh, started 35 years ago, actually, as a developer for the first 10 years of my career at HP Labs. Um, actually, Judy Gibbons is in the audience. I don't know how many of you know her, but you should all know her. She should be a speaker for you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Judy and I uh, go way back. Uh, you were at Microsoft early, right? After HP. After HP, but I think we first met when I was at HP and you were, too. Uh, HP Labs had a research lab here in Bristol. And so um, anyway, and uh, Judy's on the board of several companies. She just finished up with The Guardian and is really one of the people that have brought digital here um, in a serious way. So um, I, after about 10 years of engineering, I uh, got very lucky. The internet started. Uh, I got a chance to work for Mark Andreessen. Um, he was the co-founder of Netscape, and um, Netscape was really the birth of the internet. It's a while ago now, um, but we just recently had the 20-year anniversary. It's hard to believe, but the internet was really... Um, uh, I mean, of course, it changed everything, really. It, it really did. But I was right at a great spot. I was the head of platform and tools, and we put together... Um, Mark Andreessen's view was that the platform up until the Internet was really Microsoft Windows, was really the platform that everybody built on, client and server. And then with the Internet, that all changed. We had, um, and we had to actually figure out what that really meant. We knew it changed. We knew we were going from thousands of users of a big application to millions, and that was a huge change. But um, we had to figure out how do people build the kinds of multi-million user applications? What should run in the browser? What should run on a device? What should run in the server? How many tiers? All of these questions. And anyway, we had all these different teams at Netscape and actually beyond as well in the sort of broader ecosystem. Like we got, uh, we built things like SSL. We built JavaScript. Uh, but 
Micromedia, if you remember them, they built Flash, which was really an integral part to the early internet. We sort of put these all together and I got to work with uh, teams, not just at Netscape, but across the industry. That was some of my first trips to um, like BT, uh, showing them how they could use the internet. And of course, many, many startups. Uh, anyway, after about six years, we were though acquired. We actually lost the browser wars to Microsoft, and we were acquired. And then um, I ended up joining eBay because one of the developers, or in the developer program at Netscape, was this amazing co-founder named Pierre Omajar. And uh, I just really liked this guy, and he had already really got traction. He just had developers at eBay then, but I was brought on to build a product and design organizations uh, there. And anyway, eBay was great. And afterwards, I just wanted to work with mostly startups. I, um, Silicon Valley Product Group is only four people, and we just um, have all sort of been there, done that for a while. And we like working with uh, companies. And now the companies are, you know, early on it was Google and Amazon and Yahoo and a few years later, Facebook and Twitter. But that now, of course, uh, there's there. Many, many companies all over, and they're, they're all over the world. The other difference, uh, there really isn't much difference when I'm in London versus San Francisco anymore. There used to be a huge difference, not, not anymore. I see very little. Uh, I, some of the best teams in the world are in Shanghai, they're in Berlin, they're in London, they're in Sao Paulo, they're just all over. So um, I want to be careful about that too because I'm going to pick on... So, so what I've learned is that I don't see much difference anymore based on where I am in the world. But I see a huge difference anywhere in the world, including San Francisco, between great teams and most teams. And this just drives me nuts. Uh, I, I continue to see it all over. I'll go into a company, and even though... Um, even though you can often see a Google office through the window. I was at the Guardian, and now the Google office is literally through the window. But uh, companies are often working 10 to 20 years behind the way good companies are working. And so this really bothers me. And, and today I wanted to kind of pick on one of those topics. Uh, the real point I wanted to focus on here is that... Um, in many companies all over the world, I find that the way they think of their engineers is the root of their lack of innovation. Uh, and so that's what I wanted to focus on today. Um, this, is, this is Bezos, who, for those that don't know, the CEO of Amazon. Amazon is probably the most uh, consistently, truly innovative company in the world, at least in my opinion. Um, there are some other great companies and some other great leaders, but that, that company is amazing. Every year he publishes a shareholder letter. He just published the one for this year. You should all read it. Last year's one was epic, and last year's one had this line in it, which, is, uh, which I love this line. He, he always seems to uh, repeat this refrain. Steve Jobs did too, by the way. He would constantly, in fact, I remember him holding up his iPhone and saying, look, you can conduct 100 focus groups. You will never get an iPhone. He was trying to say the same thing. Um, and it's true. No customer asked for Prime. Did you see how many people are using Prime? I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, these are... In the lifetime value of a Prime member versus a non-Prime member, it's just, you can see where the money's coming in. But uh, this is really true, that the customers are not the source of innovation. And yet, I see so many companies that either they think it is, or they, the way they've set up how they work is like it is. And it's really not. Now, I want to be careful. This is not because customers are any sense, dumb, or anything. It's not like that. It's that there's two fundamental reasons. The first reason is that our customers don't know what's technically possible. This is really what's different about tech products. If you were doing a new brand of toothpaste, it probably doesn't matter. You could probably do focus groups and decide like what flavor is going to be good or something. But for tech products, it is not that way. It, it is all based on what's just now possible. And our customers can't be expected to know that. 
And the second dynamic <coughs> with tech products is that it's really hard for our customers, and I'll go further, it's really hard for us as well to know what we want or what they want until after we show it to them. There's this chicken and egg thing. In fact, speaking of Apple, of all the companies I've ever been in, they use more prototypes than anyone I've ever seen. And it's because they know this, they totally get this. They think they know what they want, they build a prototype, and now they know all the reasons why that won't work. And then they iterate and they iterate. And what Steve Jobs was great at was quickly zeroing in on why this prototype was bad. And his team would get back to work. But when eventually they came to him with a prototype that was good, there was a good chance they had a multi-billion dollar product coming. All right. So um, this is sort of what's underneath. Now, what I wanted to talk about is the role of engineers. I've, I've made this point in a lot of my writing and talks, but uh, this idea that if you're just using your engineers to code, you're only getting about half their value. So many companies I meet, they just view their engineers as, you know, they're not necessarily literally in the basement, <coughs> but they just as well could be. They are just, um, in fact, uh, one of my favorite venture capitalists, uh, John Doerr, likes to phrase it as, we need teams of missionaries, not teams of mercenaries. But that's the way so many companies are treating their engineers, as mercenaries. They're saying, just shut up and build it. And that's the root of the issue. Now, what I wanted to do was, first of all, I want to try to convince you that none of the great products out there were built that way. That's the first thing I want to do. I don't want you to take my word for it. I, I want you to see it. And then I want to try to talk to you about like how, what do you need to do to get this kind of result out of your engineers. That's really the heart of this. How do we do it? So let's first start. I just have a set of examples I'd like to um, tell you about the backstory on these. Um, it's the advantage to knowing lots of teams. You know a lot of backstories. And the backstories are always fascinating. But I will tell you, they're consistently, you, you appreciate the role of the engineers. I mean, Alexa is off to an amazing start. Most people would be thrilled. But what, what they don't know is that Alexa was not um, a grand strategy from, from Amazon at all. In fact, it, it started at just a very humble beginnings with just a little Echo device. All, all they wanted was a voice-controlled speaker, like a lot of people offer a voice-controlled speaker. That's all they wanted. And fine, but one of the developers on the team uh, was sitting actually right near another team working on a smart version of the uh, TV streaming device. And he just realized, why can't I just make a prototype that instead of just controlling this speaker, control whatever I want to hook up to it? And he just hacked that together as a prototype and then showed it around. And the team was like, it was one of those defining moments for the team. They realized that what he had come up with was way bigger than a, a voice-controlled speaker. In fact, they realized what this really should be is the hub of your home. You may, if you follow Alexa, you now know that now that Amazon believes it also should be the hub of your work, your workplace. I mean, they have huge ambitions for Alexa. <laughs> it's still just in the infant phase. It's just getting going. But no grand strategy, no grand plan. Engineers playing, creating a prototype, realizing something is just now possible and uh, solving a pretty great I think a real need, latent need. Another one, whoops, sorry, get too far ahead of myself. The, um, most people will credit the Apples and the Googles and the Amazons as like a great tech company, but they don't really think of older companies that way. And Disney is kind of amazing. Disney is uh, definitely an old company. Uh, they've been going, Disney Parks has been going more than 50 years. Um, and I don't know how many, I know there's one in, outside of Paris or something, but the, uh, if you've ever been to a Disney park, they are, they're special amusement park. They're not a typical amusement park. But anyway, um, 
and we could talk, they have a whole division called the Imagineering Division, which is really where they do the discovery on their rides, their amusements. But separate from that, they had, you need to understand in their business model, the parks are actually the core of their ecosystem. There's toys, there's movies, there's games, there's all this whole thing, but the park experience kind of gets kids hooked as kids, uh, and it's, it's very powerful. Anyway, the truth is they were a victim of their own success. About seven or eight years ago, they started to see their numbers drop. Now, the numbers were showing up pretty clearly in terms of how much money was being spent on a visit and how often people were coming back. It wasn't really a big mystery as to why. It got too crowded. The parks were too crowded. People were saying, you know, waiting in line forever. It's hot as hell in Florida where the Disney World is. It's like, this isn't fun anymore. And Disney was really becoming a lot less fun. And they knew that they, they, they certainly weren't willing to give up on this. Uh, they did, you know, they could have raised prices more. But if you've seen, the prices are already huge. It's, it's like they want to create some elitist thing. And so they... Um, Anyway, they, they put a team together of some very impressive product, design, engineering. They put them together and they said, look, it's time. We need to reinvent the experience. And uh, the, the charter was basically make it great again. And not make the country great again. <laughs> I can never say that anymore. I know. <laughs> they had red hats. and they, <laughs> No, don't get me started. Um, anyway, they wanted to make that experience like it was. And um, the team actually, uh, I want to oversimplify her. It was a major effort. Um, they invested over a billion dollars into this, by the way, they, to really invest. They created a prototyping lab. So they're not just prototyping your app on your phone, which they did, but they also <coughs> prototyped lines, rides, like when you wait in a line for a ride, you see things, they wanted it to be relevant to the kid's age, the gender, the interests, what are your favorite characters. And so they simulated all this in a prototyping environment, called it a discovery lab. And they were able to uh, reinvent the experience. They ended up creating something called a magic band, uh, uh, a simple uh, RFID device that was um, that every kid it was actually mailed to you at home. Uh, you'd buy your tickets online. You'd describe your family. Mailed to you the the bands. If you any of you've done it, you've seen this. But now when you go in there, you, there's no line. There is no line. You walk right through the turnstiles. It recognizes your devices. It welcomes you. Uh, when you want to have lunch, you want your kid to go buy some pizza. They don't have to ever touch money, it all goes through the device. When they want to, they plan their rides in their day, they alerts them when to show up where, and they don't, it's just, it got so much better. And you know, that's, if you go, you should, if you're there, you should check it out. But you can see how it's the foundation for a whole future experiences as well. It's really a new platform for, for entertainment. Uh, and yeah, the customers, again, Customers couldn't tell them. I mean, they customers could tell them why they didn't like it so much anymore. They couldn't tell them what to do. That's up to Disney to go do. Similarly, Google Translate. This is like nobody talks about Translate, but it really is an amazing service. There's a half a billion people that use Google Translate every month. Uh, this, you know, if it wasn't Google, anybody else would consider that massive. But um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Translate's an interesting one. It has been there for uh, over a decade now. Translate's been there. And, by the way, to be honest, the teams have been working hard on Google Translate for that entire period. But for really up until last year, most people would tell you Google Translate is kind of like, thankful it's here, it's better than nothing, but it's not very good. Uh, it, it, and I did save a lot of us that aren't, you know, I get an email in Portuguese and, and I have no, you know, so I can go at least figure out what they're saying, uh, what they're asking. So it's better than nothing, but not very good. Uh, and by the way, there's ways to quantify this too in, in language translation. They have techniques to actually quantify how much better. And after a decade of work, it had gotten a little bit better, but not enough for most us to perceive the difference. 
But last year, they actually realized there was a new technology that could maybe help, and they applied it here in Google Translate. I thought this was very interesting. They rebuilt the back end of Google Translate, didn't change a pixel of the user experience. You, you all know what it is. It's super simple. You put the whatever, and there's the translated. You just pick your language if it can't detect it. Simple. They didn't change a pixel of that experience, but they changed the entire back end, and they wanted to see if people would notice. I love this. And, and by the way, they did in a big way. People were shocked. They, they were skeptical. Like, how is this happening? There was a poet in Japan that actually was like, this can't be happening. And it was like, he showed the original translation and said, it used to take me months of work to get it to this stage. What's going on? What they had done is applied machine learning technology to this problem. And they believed that if they really did a better job at this, then the users would recognize it, which they did. Um, and they made more progress, literally quantitatively, we could measure, but they, they made more progress in one year than the entire, I think it was 11 years beforehand. And that was purely by applying an enabling technology, letting the engineers try out this new technology. It was one of the tests that Google did to help them decide that, uh, I don't know how many of you have heard this, but for years they had made a big vocal statement about being a mobile first company. They wanted to really tackle mobile, which is not done, of course. There's still lots of work. But recently, they made a new announcement. Now they're a machine learning first company. They are asking every one of their product teams to go see if this technology can re fundamentally improve how they do their jobs, how they actually solve the problems they're trying to solve. and. Uh, this is just one of many examples, actually. There's some other great stuff that just rolled out, actually, on YouTube. You might have noticed if you browse your videos. Um, I'm sorry, it keeps jumping. The iPhone, you know, everybody knows the iPhone. It's 10 years old now. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is that the iPhone itself was a three-and-a-half-year effort for the first iPhone, three-and-a-half years of work. Um, and of course, these are devices. This is hard. And, but what's amazing to me, and we already uh, you know, kind of know what um, Apple's MO, if you will. It's not really a secret. But what is amazing to me is at the very time Apple was, the, I mean, literally during the time Apple was fig discovering and the solution, which was the first iPhone, the main competitors at the time, well, Blackberry, Motorola, Nokia, who was the other one? Trio, four. They were the main competitors. And I actually know people at all four of those areas. And what was amazing is literally these companies were conducting focus groups for their next devices, smartphones. If you remember, well, at the actual time the iPhone was being designed, the, the, the BlackBerry kind of was the leader. And then the Trio was kind of like a super BlackBerry, if you remember the Trio. Uh, the Trio actually had a keyboard like a BlackBerry, but unlike a BlackBerry, the Trio actually had a touchscreen. People don't remember that, but it did. It was a crappy touchscreen. <laughs> it was really bad. You could barely dial a phone number, but it had a touchscreen. Literally, at these focus groups, the main piece of feedback they got from people was, because in a focus group, you ask them what they want. They were like, well, this touchscreen sucks. Lose the touchscreen. That was the main feedback consistently those other companies got. And of course, Apple knows enough not to even ask. Of course, right? you don't, they don't ask their customers, do you like a touchscreen? And no, they know that you know, touchscreen, yeah, the Palm Trio was terrible. But you know what? The technology wasn't right, and it wasn't ready. But now we think we can. And in fact, not only did they, you know, the customers not know what could be done with the touchscreen technology, but in truth, I think most of those competitors didn't realize it either. Anyway, that's the story. It's the engineers and applying technology that is just now possible to solve real customer needs. That's where these come from. I wanted to share one other example that wasn't a big everybody knows consumer device, because I don't want you to think you have to be an Apple or a Google or an Amazon to, to do something like this. 
This company is uh, called Workiva, and I'd be surprised if anybody here had heard of them, but they are one of the uh, fastest growing companies in the US. They uh, went public after just a few years. They grew from nothing to um, something like 85% of the Fortune 1000 running their products and just completely disrupted their space. You wouldn't have heard of them because they basically provide the automated, the software that helps finance, accounting people, handle all of the reporting that they do every quarter and every year when you're a public company. To Royal, it's, it's incredibly boring, detailed financial reporting and accounting. However, these people, um, the co-founders had actually done a company before that in the engineering automation space. And they had a friend, actually, whose company was um, going public. And the friend was showing them all the unbelievably tedious months and months of work that had to be done to prepare to go public. And, um, and they were looking at this saying, this is just crazy. And, and the poor people, and because they would, you know, they were talking to these uh, finance and accounting people. They often weren't getting home to their kids. I mean, during the period of uh, month end, quarter end, year end, many of you have heard this from the accounting people in your own companies. It's just a thankless, brutal job. And they had, uh, they realized, this is crazy. We can totally reinvent this space. The software that's there today is terrible, which it was terrible. And they just completely went in. A bunch of really, honestly, six engineers uh, got together. Now, they, they really sat down and learned what they needed to learn from the accounting people. But they committed themselves to really making their lives better. They, they made some very early bets in cloud technology and rich experience technology. And they rode that just uh, this is, uh, yeah, one of the things I love about this company is all over their walls are genuine letters from their customers uh, telling them how genuinely grateful they are that they can see their kids, you know, at the end of the month and not just, uh, <laughs> you know. So anyway, you can absolutely do that. And this is how the great companies work. I, I'm happy to see there's a little trend going on now where in enterprise software, it's called consumerization of the enterprise. It's like applying consumer caliber products to enterprise. To me, that's long overdue because many of us at work, we have great software at home and terrible software to use at work. It's just crazy. All right. So I could honestly keep going. I know so many of the backstories of great technology. In my book, actually, I wrote a bunch more. There, there's some great stories of great initial products, the original Netflix, the original Google AdWords, lots of them. But you'll see that theme. It's about uh, you know, unleashing the power of the technology and combining that with a real customer need. Um, what I wanted to talk, if you believe or agree that you really need to get engineers to participate in not just building your products, but also inventing your products, then I wanted to talk about how we make that happen. Because it won't happen uh, on its own. It won't happen on its own. And so especially won't happen if you treat them the old way where you or your CEO creates roadmaps and throws them over a wall to a bunch of engineers and say, build these features. All right, so there is this notion of table stakes. I, I only put this in here because I continue to meet companies that think they can actually be a true tech company, yet outsource their engineers to India or something. <laughs> so I don't want to embarrass anybody here, but if any of you are in that boat where you, you literally don't have engineers with you, to be clear, I don't care if you're in India and you have engineers in India, but if you're here in London and all your engineers are contractors from Infosys or something in India or China, this is, you've got almost no chance, just to be honest with you. First of all, you're going to spend 
you're going to waste way too much money. And you probably are doing this because you think you're going to save money, which is the big myth in this. You're not going to save money. You're going to waste money. It's going to take a much bigger team. It's going to go way slower, and you're going to get no innovation. So table stakes is that you have a team. So if you're located in Manchester, you've got a team in Manchester with you. In fact, we, if you're a product manager and you don't have at least two engineers to work with on an ongoing basis, you're not a product manager. You're something else. It's some other job. So, Because we're, we're there to actually create products, and the engineers will help us create those products. So, um, so table stakes is that you have a team of engineers, and we want to hire engineers that are passionate about our vision. That's why the product vision is so important. I, this talk isn't about product vision, but um, I will just point out that that is our number one recruiting tool, is the vision. That's what good engineers, that's what good designers, that's what good product managers, they want to join to work on a great vision. If you wonder, why does uh, Tesla share their vision with the world? It's a 10-year vision. They just shared the second 10-year vision. This is their best recruiting tool. Uh, so they don't care if the world knows vision. Now the details of how we solve that, that's the hard stuff, and that's not the stuff you'll find on a website. But the vision is powerful. And uh, anyway, we want a team of engineers that's passionate about the vision. That's table stakes. So without that, you're really not a contender. You, you just don't have a chance. Any company that I work with, if they don't have that, I'm like, call me when you've actually hired a team. Because you got nothing to do right now. All right. So assuming you have that, there are a set of things that I want to encourage. The first one is you have to provide your engineers with the full business context, everything. They need the information. And to be clear, really everything I'm going to say applies to the designers on the team too. It's just that the designers more often get access to this. The product, the engineers often don't. But the engineers need to know. They need to know the KPIs. They need to know the metrics that matter. They need to know uh, the customer pain. They need to know the sales limitations. They need to know contractual obligations. They need this stuff. They're the ones, it's amazing, because a lot of product people think it's their job. A lot of CEOs think they need to shield or shelter the engineers from this information. But I tell them this is the worst thing you can do. These are the people that are going to actually save you. So don't shelter it. They can handle it. This is actually very motivating to good engineers. They're very motivated by problems to solve, hard problems to solve. And that's what this is. So all the context you can. Now, some of the context is pretty obvious. We talk about like requirements. There are some things that are pretty obvious. Um, things like how performance constraints or scalability estimates. But most things are not as obvious. Most are like, well, we have, um, I was just talking to somebody yesterday that's doing another one of those, um, uh, another one of the bike sharing systems, right? You've seen them all over the place. Um, in fact, in San Francisco, it's become such a problem because, of course, the cool thing is bikes, you don't need to park them anymore, right? They have GPS. Isn't that nice? Problem is you, people leave them anywhere, and they do. So now they're littering all over the place, and people are complaining, and they're being impounded, and it's like, you know what? Product has to worry about this. We have to worry about compliance, about laws, about um, okay, privacy. We're right in the middle of a major privacy uh, shift right now. Product has to worry about privacy constraints and, and policies, and we have to worry about legal issues. We have to worry about go-to-market limitations, our sales force, our marketing channel. Product managers have a, all of these dimensions of the business they need to know so they can share these issues with the team. I'll get more into that point in a bit, but the critical thing here is you have to share this context with your team. Now, the truth is not all your engineers are going to care about all of it. That's fine. But they need, they need to know it when, when uh, they need access to it, at the very least, from you. All right. <laughs> Second, uh, 
and this is kind of amazing. And I, I don't really, there's a psychological thing that happens, but I just call it magic, actually. But magic <laughs> happens when the engineers see the actual users and customers face-to-face. It's just, you know, it's not the same over a video link. It's not the same in a usability lab with a two-way glass stuff. It's none of that is the same. They, ha- they, want it. they need to see it right there, visceral, that interaction. And even when, by the way, it gets really ugly, a lot of times it does get ugly because the customer is mad. Uh, they might be mad at your product. They might be mad at whatever they're using or maybe a competitor's product, but they're not happy. Those are the really good ones to have the engineers at because they will get very motivated. Uh, and so, and again, a lot of people don't want to include engineers. Of course, the most common argument is, how can we take them away for an hour from their coding, right? That's crazy. We're not trying to take all six of our engineers to all of our sessions, but we want to take at least one to every session. And again, not all six are going to be crazy about doing this. They don't need to be. But it's normal for two or three of them to be very interested in doing this, and so we'll rotate among them. And if you don't have at least one engineer on your team that is into this, you need a more senior, uh, serious engineer on the team. All right, third. This whole topic of requirements could be a whole other hour we could talk about. Requirements... Uh, are not talked about like they used to be talked about. The the truth is most requirements are not really requirements. Um, There is somebody thinks something's a requirement. Somebody in marketing says we must do this. Uh, And of course, they're not just making this up. It's just they think we have to do this. Uh, We in product have to go figure out what is the real underlying constraint? Maybe what's going on is they think we have to have this form because these other sites have it, but what's really going on is if the user's under 13 years old, we are not allowed to ask certain things. And there's an underlying constraint that we need to figure out because every time we get to those underlying constraints, we give the engineers many more degrees of freedom to solve the problem. The more you can, uh, well, the less you can give them in terms of requirements, the better. Mostly we try to focus on problems to solve. If you've heard of jobs to be done, it's the same idea. Okay. The, uh, there, in general, for every product team, there's two things we do. The term I use for it is discovery and delivery. Um, delivery, discovery is when we figure out what to build. You might have heard of build the right product. That's discovery. Figure out the solution. And and really, there's four things we care about. The customer will buy it or would choose to use it. That's value. The customer can figure out how to use it. That's usability. We can actually build it. That's feasibility. And it's viable for our business. Viability. This means... um, It works for the legal constraints. It works within the financial constraints. We can afford it. It works within the uh, uh, go-to-market constraints. So we're looking for solutions that do those four things. That's what discovery is. Lean startup techniques. You mentioned Eric Reese was here. Lean startup is a subset of discovery techniques. There are some great techniques in there. There are many different techniques that contribute to discovery. Uh, and we use them all. <laughs> we have qualitative techniques, quantitative techniques. Um, there's always one technique. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a book out on jobs to be done right now, so a lot of people are talking about it. It's actually an old technique. It's a good technique. It's like, but if that's all you're using, you're in big trouble. Uh, just like design thinking, design sprints, great technique, one of my favorites. But it's not good for most work but it's great for other work. So you should all be skilled. They're also called discovery sprints. You should be skilled in that technique, but it's just one technique. And you, we don't even use it all that much. It's more like we'll do one discovery sprint or design sprint per quarter on average, like that. 
So any of these techniques, you have to be careful. There is no silver bullet. In product, we have many techniques, and your job is to choose the right one for the job. Um, now, the other, side, other work is delivery work, which is to actually get these, this, we figured out a product that hopefully you know, we think we have evidence will sell and will work. Um, now we have to get it to market. That's delivery. Most companies are much better at delivery than they are at discovery. Uh, Agile is all about delivery. If you have an Agile coach, they're all about delivery. In fact, most of the teams, at least that I work with, they're doing continuous delivery. They're quite good at this. But discovery is the other half of the problem. Um, I always I frame it as discovery and delivery. Uh, the oldest way I've seen it framed was uh, build the right product, build the product right. Um, but early Google, and still in many parts of Google, they phrase it as fake it before you make it. Fake it is discovery, make it is delivery. Uh, Facebook, move fast, discovery, don't break things, delivery. My, one of my favorites, Airbnb. Um, I haven't mentioned them. They're a great product team. They refer to it as uh, build things that don't scale. That's discovery. And then build things that do scale. That's delivery. I like that framing because it really makes people understand <laughs> that this is not a, a classic. In fact, there's a backlash going on right now against lean startup. And, and, and it really bothers me because the lean startup techniques are great when used appropriately. The problem is most people don't use them appropriately. I can't tell you how many teams I meet that take four months to build an MVP. If you're taking four months to build an MVP, you are missing the whole point of this. That is what we call product as prototype. You have spent, and just to level set you, I, I may, probably not fair to throw this at you and just a, a side comment, but um, in discovery, a competent team, product team in discovery is testing on the order of 15 to 30 iterations per week. Okay? <laughs> 15 to 30 per week, not one per four months, okay? So what's really going on when you have one per four months is you, you're using your engineers to do discovery, which is a really expensive and slow, uh, and I would argue irresponsible way of working. So that's a big topic, but that is, the book that I guess you all get a copy of is 400 pages, and it mostly talks about how to do that, how to do 15 to 30 iterations per week in discovery. And by the way, really good teams can do a lot more than that. It's not hard to do that. A lot of prototyping, a lot of qualitative techniques, not just quantitative, but yeah, that's how we get, that's how we get good stuff done fast. We try out lots of approaches. So um, anyway, discovery is the product manager, the designer, and the engineers. Now, here's the thing. Discovery is full time, really, for the product manager and designer. But all we need is about a half an hour a day from your engineers. Now, and that's, of course, because the, the, most of the day for engineers is doing delivery. That's their, their, you know, that's their primary job, is to build scalable, fault-tolerant, reliable software. And so um, that's what they spend most of their day doing. But a little bit of time every day to go into figuring out what to build is easily the best investment you can make. In fact, the, the way I, uh, most engineers already insist, have been complaining that they are not included in this. In fact, I'm, I, I know I have heard countless times engineers complain to me, if I had just been consulted for even five minutes, we could have saved months of grief. And of course, they didn't. And I just want to make this real for you. If the first time you're showing your engineers what you need them to build is at sprint planning, you have screwed up on this. Sprint planning is way too late. That's an example of the problem, not what I'm talking about. Okay, so they need a little time. Thinking about it, making it better, assessing it. The other thing here is that we wanna make sure that we measure teams based on the business results. 
And of course, the challenge is that most of you probably are given roadmaps from your executives or even from yourself. And roadmaps are typically just lists of features and projects. And that's output. And I, all I can tell you is that most of those things, no matter how smart you are, you're going to regret doing because they won't actually work. The most common reasons is that we're excited, but our customers are not. So they don't actually use it or they don't want to buy it. Or they try to use it and they can't figure out how to use it and then they bail on it. For whatever reason, you'll regret it. And so the question is, uh, you know, that's all waste. And we want to avoid that. So we want to get some evidence that it's going to work before that. And so what we're really measured if we're a good team is not on whether or not we ship these 25 features this month, but whether or not we actually move the numbers we're trying to move, like retention rate or like lifetime value of a customer, or engagement, or whatever it is that we're asked to focus on, that's how we measure success. And that's the whole OKR system, if you've heard of that, that's where it came from, was to get the team stop worrying about roadmaps, start worrying about business results. All right. And the last item here. <laughs> <laughs> Is really true. A lot of teams, a lot of engineers complain to me about their product managers. So many of them. That's, that is the single biggest complaint I get. Uh, and I mean, you've all, and many of you may have moved into product from engineering because you were frustrated with the product managers. I mean, that, that's a really common motivation for, for moving into product. But it is, um, and this has been another hot button of mine lately. I, I have a theory about why so many teams feel like they have such a, you know, incompetent is a rough word, but not a capable product manager. Uh, and my theory is because most product managers I meet, the only training they've actually had is a certified scrum product owner class, CSPO. <laughs> And that, just to be clear, you should have that certification. It's super easy to get. But that's like maybe 10% of the job of a product manager. That's the administrative role. And you know, that's, you have a, if your team is using Scrum or Kanban, there's an administrative role that the product manager plays. That's called the product owner responsibilities. But that is, if that's what you're doing, you know, you're an expensive backlog administrator. And so that is such a problem in our industry. Um, and I try to tell people, no, you know, that's a small percentage of the job. I started actually going out on a limb because you really try to get people to understand just how big a difference this is, the, the product owner responsibilities versus the overall product manager job. And I started advocating the point about a good product manager is truly the CEO of the product. This has been controversial for a long time. Uh, but, and I went back and forth on it in truth. Of course, it's controversial because the product manager is not the boss of anybody. We need to be clear on that. They're not the boss of anybody. And when they start acting like the boss of you know, the team, then a lot of things go wrong. So it is not meant to imply that. Although in a startup where the CEO is the product manager, then they are the boss of everybody, but that's the startup. But that doesn't, at a certain point, you know, that doesn't scale. So, uh, but they are like the CEO because a competent product manager has to understand all these elements of the business. They understand how the product is marketed, how it's sold, how, it's, uh, how, how the onboarding process goes how we pay for it, the financials, how much it costs for us to run this product and serve it, how much it costs us to acquire a user, how much value we get out of those customers. They understand the legal issues, the compliance issues. They understand GDPR stuff, that, if that's going to impact this. They understand um, contracts with partners and literally what they're on the hook for. That, in the only other role I know of in a company that's like that is the CEO. Really, that's, and so in a very real and meaningful sense, the product manager needs to be the CEO of that product, just not in the boss sense. They're not an authoritarian role. It's a, uh, 
a knowledge role. And they're bringing all these things to the team and helping to make a call. So that's what I mean by a competent product manager. It, you know, it takes some real work. I mean, product manager is a super hard job. I think it's the hardest job on a team. Uh, so no, I don't apologize for that. It's a very hard job. I have this, another pet peeve of mine, as many of you have seen, that associate product manager title. Now, I'm not referring to, like, Google has an APM program, which is an apprentice product manager. That's awesome. But this notion of an associate product manager, I, if it was up to me, that would be gone. We wouldn't have that notion because no team wants an associate product manager. They want a product manager, somebody who knows this stuff, not somebody that knows 10% of it. And so to me, the, the table stakes for a product manager are pretty significant. It's a lot of work. But that's key. Uh, and every great team I know, the engineers have contributed in a big way, but they all have a strong product manager. And most of them, once they've tasted, had a, had a chance to work with a great product manager, they insist on having somebody like that going forward because they know, now they know what they're missing. Yeah, Judy. I have a question, Marty, if I may. In your wonderful book, um, you feature six product managers yes. from Adobe and Apple and Microsoft and these wonderful um, companies. And the remarkable thing about all six of them is they're women. And in a world in which women aren't very well represented, I think it's amazing that your six exemplars are all women. And do you want to say anything about that? Uh, yeah, so... Um... <laughs> I have lots of funny stories that after I gave a talk actually in London, uh, the Mind the Product, where it was last year, I think it was something like that, the Mind the Product, and that was, I, did, I prepared this for that talk, and I ended up including it in the book. The, there's an article, if you want, called Behind Every Great Product, and I knew what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about great product managers, but I actually, and I and I know, that's my advantage, I know so many of them. And I put a list together of uh, great product managers, but then I also wanted to pick stories, so because I, I wanted to tell the backstory, so I wanted them to be iconic products. And I know a lot of great product managers that were just not fortunate enough to work on an iconic product. Uh, and I couldn't help but notice that even though women are not even close to 50% of tech product managers, that they were more than 50% of my list. And I, um, and I realized that uh, I, I also wanted to highlight that. I did end up, I got asked that so much, I did write up my theories about why. Uh, I didn't put this in the book, but if you're interested, there is an article you can Google titled, Why Women Make the Best Product Managers. And I do believe there are real reasons why. Um, it's kind of complicated. I don't want to, uh, and I don't want to not do it justice. But if you're interested in why, I'd encourage you to read that article. That's just my theories from a male perspective, obviously, about why women seem to be disproportionately strong in this. Uh, and I've got many more examples. Well, you know a lot of them. I, we've, I, I've, I introduce a lot of great product people to Judy. I want them to know her. Um, and so, uh, yeah. There's a lot. It's a, it's a great career for women. And by the way, uh, it is the proving ground for startup CEOs, as you know. So it's a great path to getting a lot more women leaders, which I'd love to see for the same reasons I wrote why women make the best product managers. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.